Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Well, it's another huge news day today. Welcome to our program. I've got five takeaways, actually a few more than that, from Biden's State of the Union speech. If you watched it, we'd love to hear what you thought of it. First of all, I'd, I'd like to flag for you Sahil Kapoor, who has been a guest on this program many times from back in the days. I mean, this was like a decade ago when he was writing for the Center for American Progress, wrote the NBC News summary, and he made some great points. First of all, with regard to style, to the best of my knowledge, Joe Biden is our first stuttering president. And, you know, as a guy who lives in a world of sound, I'm highly auditory. I do. I've, I've been doing radio since I was 16 years old, on and off. I was just taken aback at times by his, the difficulty that he had reading that speech and the challenge that he had dealing with the timing of applause. And I think it's all because he was struggling so hard to read the speech. He actually did start stuttering at one point. He was struggling so hard to read the speech that he just wanted to get through it. He didn't even want to let the applause go on. And I get that. I, you know, I totally get it. Um, and, and what's so amazing to me is that in spite of that, in spite of how, how poorly it was delivered in some ways, there were moments that really soared. It was still an extraordinary, powerful, um, consequential speech. He said, the state of our union is strong because you, the American people, are strong. He said, we are stronger today than we were a year ago. A year from now, we will be stronger yet. This is our moment to meet and overcome the challenges of our time. Uh, hit one of his main applause lines was, uh, the answer is not to defund the police. The answer is to fund the police. Uh, Louise and I flipped over to BBC for commentary, and they had some idiot from the United States uh, who said, well, you know, the entire left, the whole Democratic Party wants to defund the police. So I don't know how this is going to go over with his own party. Yeah, the defund the police crowd is about one, you know, one or zero people in Congress right now. Yes, you know, reform the police. Yes, you know, move, move uh, policing, bring in social services for the appropriate things, but defund. Anyhow, uh, Biden got booed uh, when he pointed out that uh, Trump's tax cuts only went to the top 1%. Uh, he was cheered when he said he had, you know, this $1.9 million stimulus package. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene tried to heckle him while he was talking about his son dying of cancer because he was near a burn pit in Iraq. That was absolutely the low point of the night. And Marjorie Taylor Greene has revealed herself along with Lauren Boebert, who also tried to heckle him. 
have revealed themselves as trolls. They're just trolls. These are not serious legislators. And what the hell is the Republican Party going to do about them? I'll, I'll finish my wrap up on the other side of this break. It'll just take a minute or two and then I'll pick up your phone calls. And by the way, Joe Manchin, instead of sitting with the Democrats, sat with uh, Senators Roger Wicker, uh, you know, the guy who's been making racist remarks about the Supreme Court, uh, our Supreme Court nominee, and John Barrasso throughout the entirety of the speech. He said he wanted to be sitting near Mitt Romney, but that's not what he did. <laughs> and, uh, and when he was asked about President Biden saying, hey, let's revive this Build Back Better thing, Mr. Manchin said, uh, nothing has changed. You know, we're, I'm with the Republicans. Screw, the, screw America. You know, I, I, Joe Manchin clearly and frankly doesn't give a crap about West Virginians, about average working people. Um, he just is reveling and loving the fact that the oil barons and the right-wing billionaires and the other shills on the take in the Republican Party are embracing him, and he's getting his face on television constantly. He's loving it. This man is sick. Anyhow, back to the speech. Um, uh, he, he, uh, uh, President Biden, uh, this is, you know, in case you missed it, he noted our economy grew at a rate of 5.7% last year, the strongest growth in nearly 40 years. He talked about, you know, we're coming back out of COVID. He said uh, he bashed trickle-down economics, you know, naming Ronald Reagan's program that's still in effect, by the way. He's trying to reverse it, but Joe Manchin and, and Kirsten Cinema wouldn't let him do it. Um, he says, during the pandemic, these foreign-owned companies raised prices by as much as 1,000% and made record profits. Tonight, I'm announcing a crackdown on these companies overcharging American businesses and consumers. And the camera panned over to the Republican side. Not a single Republican applauded that. They are gung-ho for companies gouging, price-gouging American consumers. That's, these are the companies that keep them in power. He called for boosting manufacturing in the U.S. so that we could stop being dependent on China for our supply, you know, our, and, and the supply chains. He said we want to make record investments in emerging technologies in American manufacturing and help fix supply chain problems. Uh, he said that his Build Back Better plan, he's still pushing it. He said it would actually cut prices for Americans. It would cut the deficit, which is Joe Manchin's big talking point. Of course, all the Republicans, oh, you just want to spend money. He, it, this would actually, because it raises taxes on rich people, which is what they're really flipped out about. And, Manchin, and uh, Biden last night again said nobody over 400000 under $400,000 a year will see an increase in their taxes. But, uh, you know, anyhow, he said we need to negotiate, allow Medicare to negotiate prescription drug prices. We need to raise taxes on corporations. We need investments in clean energy, child care, and universal preschool for three- and four-year-olds. Again, Manchin said, and, and, of course, cinema too, which is why we need, every one of us needs to get registered and get to the polls this fall and make sure that we get at least two new Democratic senators because we've got two Democratic senators that are basically turncoats. They've basically turned on not just their party, they've turned on their country. They've thrown in with a, with a handful of very, very wealthy right-wing billionaires and a, and, a, and a handful of large multinational corporations. They know which side their bread, bread is buttered on. These people are so corrupt. We need to have more Democrats. And then, you know, Biden also talked at some length about promoting democracy and defeating autocracy, which is one of his main themes. He said, quote, an unwavering result, a resolve that freedom will always triumph over tyranny. When dictators do not pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos. 
He also announced that we're shutting off U.S. Air, airspace to uh, Ukrainian planes. Meanwhile, speaking of Ukraine, the government of Ukraine just issued a, uh, a Russian language and Ukrainian language notice that uh, it just explicitly says, uh, this is on the official army Ukrainian website, right? Officially says, I wish I ask you to convey this information to thousands of unfortunate mothers in Russia whose sons were taken prisoner in Ukraine. We have decided to give the captured Russian soldiers back to their mothers if they come to for them to Ukraine, to Kiev. What needs to be done to bring your son back from captivity? Number one, call the phone number listed on the leaflet to find out if your son is in captivity or died. Um, number and then if you have received confirmation that your son is in our captivity, the mothers of Russian soldiers must get to Kiev. Go to Kaliningrad, get to Kaliningrad or Minsk from there by bus or taxi, go to the Polish border. Then through the territory of Poland, you need to use the checkpoint with Ukraine. There you will be met and escorted to Kiev where you will be handed over to your son. We Ukrainians, unlike Putin's fascists, are not at war with mothers and their captive children. And of course, meanwhile, the Republicans are all trying to pretend that they weren't down with Donald Trump on, on extorting, on withholding $400 million worth of military aid to Ukraine uh, just, just a couple of years ago. Kevin McCarthy, who refused to impeach Trump for this, um, who actually supported it, uh, last night he said on Fox and Friends, it's the actions that we couldn't have, uh, we could have done before from this administration to make sure today wasn't happening. We could have supplied weapons to Ukraine. Right. Um, McCarthy, uh, back on, in the day, back, you know, in, in 2016 when, uh, uh, when all this was happening, he says, I have no problem uh, with, reholding, with, rehold, with, with, by, with withholding aid to Ukraine because all they're trying to do is root out corruption. Right. He doesn't want us to remember that, you know, that he was supportive of this. Same with Elise Stefanik. She led the, the defense of Donald Trump in his, uh, in, I believe, his second impeachment trial. And uh, she's now pretending that she's all gung-ho with Ukraine, tweeting out, my message to the people of Ukraine, we are with you. Right, right. Not, not when it was, you know, really urgent. And Trump didn't just, by the way, withhold military aid. He also pushed all these baseless conspiracy theories uh, you know, about what was going on in Ukraine. He, he, he worked that year to make, quote, make sure the new Republican platform won't call for giving weapons to Ukraine to fight Russian and rebel forces, contradicting the view of almost all Republican foreign policy leaders in Washington. It's a quote from the Washington Post from the time, at the time this was going on. So now you've got Stefanik and McCarthy and, uh, and now Ted Cruz. <laughs> Ted Cruz, he has two tweets last night. One says, uh, President Biden doesn't care if gas hits $10 a gallon. And then the other one was, uh, you know, Biden has imposed sanctions on Russia's central bank, but has exempted oil and gas. So Cruz is saying, you know, Biden should cut off Russian oil and gas to the United States, but he has to, he has to keep prices on, on gas and oil low. Right. Pick a, you know, you got a choice there, Biden. Bill Kristol tweeting about this. He says, in the last 24 hours in the midst of an international crisis, the official account of the Republican National Committee has tweeted over a dozen attacks on Joe Biden, but it has not chosen to say one word critical of Vladimir Putin. Again, asked three times, Senator Tom Cotton refused to condemn Trump's praise of Putin. Yeah, I mean, it just goes on and on. So anyhow, I, I've ranted enough here. I'll pick up your phone calls and your thoughts on all this. 
Jim in Austin, Texas. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind? You wanted to, you wanted to talk about the State of the Union address or the, or the rebuttal? Uh, uh, yes, well, both of those. And uh, you've tied things together so well this time, Tom. It feels like Zelensky is in the position of Churchill and Biden is in the position of uh, FDR back in, you know, 39, 40, whatever, when things were happening in Europe. And I got that feeling as the speech was going forward. It was a marvelous, I dare say. And, and I can remember uh, FDR and the radio said, I'll tell you, I've got a little perspective on it. There's a, there was a feeling of bringing everything together and everyone understanding what was important and our government pulling together. So that's the, my reaction to the speech. I think it's one of the few or perhaps the top state of the speech, state of the unions ever given. I agree. I but, agree. But moving on, um, we get into the response by the Republicans. And I was, uh, I was texting some of my friends, and I said, if the Republicans are smart, they will simply say they see no need at this point for a rebuttal. But, of course, they did not. And it felt to me like they mar walked into a trap. A rebuttal by the governor, uh, well, it, of course, did not speak to basically anything that was in the State of the Union. It was obviously canned right. and responding to things they were anticipating. But it was really a laundry didn't. list of Republican grievances, basically, it, from what I saw. Exactly. I only saw about a third of exactly. it. Well, I decided to watch the entire thing, and I'm glad I did, because it was closed uh, by, uh, uh, by a statement that uh, these are the things that Republicans believe, and these are the things that they are doing. That fits in with what you said a moment ago about uh, the, uh, uh, and I can't remember the name of the uh, Republican politician uh, who was uh, uh, considering running and ask, well, what, uh, what do we stand for, and decided to uh, stand for anything. And I submit that what happened in that Republican rebuttal, look at it, is that the Republicans believe and are doing nothing. Yeah, yeah. That was the, that I the, the Republican Party has been captured. Uh, you know, obviously we've got the you know this Trump wackadoodle fashion, faction and the and the QAnon people like Marjorie Greene, but the 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 larger problem that the Republican Party has had since the since the 1980s basically is that it has been captured by a handful of oligarchs. Um, there are multiple networks. The the Koch network is probably the most well known, but. You know, there are others. Shelley Adelson had his role before he passed away, uh, the Mercers and others, you know, some of these billionaires that we know about. And, and they have become, and, and they're all libertarians. They all believe that government should have no role in doing anything except running the police and the military and the courts. And, and as a consequence, everything Democrats want to do, and everything, you know, even some Republicans like Mitt Romney want to do, uh, institutionally the party has become opposed to. They've become the party of no. That's right. And, and, and you know what really got interesting is the, that the governor who gave that speech accomplished nobody else has in a rebuttal. She became even more unknown after she gave the speech. <laughs> Kim Reynolds, yeah. I get it. Jim, it was thank, remarkable. Yeah, thank you for the call. And thanks for having the, 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 the intestinal fortitude, you know, the strong stomach to watch that whole thing. I appreciate your thoughts on it. Back with more of your thoughts on the state of the union and the state of the world right after this.
Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef to you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Just a remarkable story that I found over at Grid.News, a, a relatively new news site that I found. They do some good deep dive reporting. And I, I just want to share the first couple paragraphs or, or pieces of this with you, just, just straight up, because this is what's going on right now in this conflict between Russia and Ukraine. The headline, if you go over to grid.news, if you want to follow along or track it down and, and share it with others, it's titled, Pregnant Posting Then Detained, Russia's Cracking Down on Social Media Amid the Ukraine Invasion. On the morning of February 24th, a woman in Moscow woke up and checked her social media to discover a nightmare became real overnight. Russian shells had rained down across Ukraine where some of her relatives live. Later that day, the woman, pregnant and already a mother, reposted an activist's encouragement for people in Russia to rally against the war that evening. Quote, the situation with the war is so serious that I thought there will be some man or woman who will be brave enough, even despite legal restrictions on political assembly, to say the time and place, she told Grid News, end quote. Uh, police came for her seven hours later. Let me say that again. For posting on Facebook, police came for her seven hours later. On Friday, the Moscow woman appeared in court where court administrators had a printed copy of her Facebook activity. She told them, quote, there are some historic moments when it's very important to go to the streets and say no, and this was such an historic moment, and she pled guilty. They fined her 20,000 rubles. I suppose the good news is that that would be $200 and, you know, it's because the ruple is worth about a penny right, right now. But that's actually half of the average monthly salary in Russia. 
So this is a this was a serious hit to her, a, a big hit to her. And you know this this is just this is happening across the country on Thursday afternoon. Opposition uh, politician Marina Litvinich posted a video and announcement on Facebook calling for Russians to head to the central square of their cities at 7 p.m. She was detained that evening, questioned about her social media use, and later pleaded guilty to organizing an unauthorized gathering. She was charged 30,000 rubles for this. This is all under Article 20.2, the Russian law that basically outlaws this kind of thing. This is where, in my opinion, and you know, if you think I'm wrong on this, let me know, but this is where I think America would be if Donald Trump was president now. And here's why. Trump explicitly, on multiple occasions, with the support of numerous Republican members of the House and Senate, and a few right-wing commentators, now most of them being part of the media, kind of stayed away from this, but Trump repeatedly said that the libel laws in the United States need to be changed. Now, libel is when you publish a slur against somebody that is not true. I mean, the only defense to libel is, is the truth. But there's this exception. It goes back to an old Supreme Court case called Times versus Sullivan, a New York Times versus Sullivan. And the exception is that you can say whatever you want about a public official or a high profile person. You can go on Facebook and say that, you know, Tom Hartman eats kittens. You know, I can go on the air or publish something on Facebook or, or Twitter or wherever and, you know, essentially say that Ted Cruz is a coward. And none of us can sue because of that. This is what Sarah Palin just tried to do. But if the law had been changed the way that Trump wanted it changed, keep in mind, these Russians were not put in prison for posting on Facebook. They were fined a month's salary. Or in the case of the first one, a half a month, the second one about a month's salary. So if Trump had gotten his laws, then if you or I posted something to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or TikTok or wrote a letter to the local newspaper or even said something in public that got recorded in some way or posted something on our own private blog that is accessible to the public, we could be facing huge fines sanctioned by the government. And in fact, if the United States was to adopt a law like Texas's anti-abortion law, individuals could sue on behalf of other people for that sort of thing. And this is how free speech gets crushed in a country. This is absolutely how free speech gets crushed in a country. And I think that one of the reasons that up until the last 48 hours, Republicans across, pretty much across the board, including the chant, go Putin, go Putin, go Russia, go Russia, at the AFPAC conference and the, and the pro-Putin sentiments at the CPAC, I think the reason that Republicans have been so vigorous in their support of Russia is they like the fact that the press is locked down there. They like the fact that average citizens can't speak out. As much as they want to do their trucker convoy to bring down that tyrant Joe Biden, you know, we tolerate that in this country. But if they got the government that they want, they would not be able to do their own protests. Now, I'm guessing that these guys are not all that bright, these, these uh, right-wingers who are doing their trucker convoys and trying to run Kamala Harris's bus off the road and, and uh, you know, trying to shut down Washington, D.C. We just had 
you know, here in Oregon, we just had a guy prosecuted because a Republican member of Congress let so-called protesters into the state capitol back when, you know, around January 6th time, actually just a little before that. These are, there were rehearsals in state capitals all over the country for how to seize a capitol building. And it happened here in Oregon. And one of the guys just got, just got uh, a, a short time, but some time in prison. I mean, short, like a few weeks or maybe a few months, I don't recall, but it was, I remember thinking, whoa, that's very, very little. But he got nailed for it. But the bottom line is that, you know, they're sucking up to these authoritarians because at the end of the day, they really don't want to hear dissenting voices. They really don't want democracy. They don't want an open discussion. They don't want a pluralistic country. That's absolutely what is going on. And by the way, after the break, I want to rant a little bit about uh, Joe Manchin lining up with the Republicans to block a woman's right to have an abortion in the United States. But this is all the same thing. This is all about authoritarianism. It's all about basically white men, now a minority in the United States, asserting the power and privilege that they slash, you know, speaking as a white man, that we still have and trying to, trying to institutionalize it, trying to maintain the institutionalization of it and trying to stifle anybody who would challenge it. This is exactly what the book bannings and book burnings that are going on, the book burning in Tennessee and the book bans in a dozen states now are, are all about. This is exactly what the anti-critical race theory, haha, the anti-American history, hysteria, and now laws, laws with penalties. And those penalties are $10,000 fines, right? They, where you can be pursued by vigilantes if you're a teacher in Florida right now. Or at least that's the proposed legislation that passed the Florida House this week or late last week. This is what they want. They want to turn America into Russia's Putin because they want a big, tough, strong guy at the head of the government who's going to, who's going to kick the butts of those wimpy liberals who want to pay attention to things like science, and they want to salute the TV preachers who tell them that this is all God's plan. Trump is the new King Cyrus who's going to take us to the fabled promised land. This is who they are. And it's a tragedy for democracy in America. They're spitting in the faces of the millions of Americans who have died for our freedom to speak freely and our freedom to have the form of government that we want in this country without billionaire oligarchs ripping it away from us. Zeke in Portland. Hey, Zeke, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Well, Tom, I... You're not going to like what I have to say, but if you just give me a minute, I will say it, and then you can you can respond. Okay. The butcher the butchery of a civilian population that we are about to witness in Ukraine on a scale that we have not seen since the Nazis in World War II. If you and the American people think for a minute that that's going to be the end of it, it is scene one in a script that Mr. Putin has planned out very carefully that he is executing point by point. And this is not just me talking. This is Wesley Clark talking, general of the army and the architect of our brilliant victory over Serb fascism back in the 90s. He is saying 
you got to look at the big picture here. He's using nuclear blackmail to keep us from doing what we need to do desperately here, which is intervene with kinetic force on behalf of the Ukraine. And if you think he's going to stop at the Ukraine, oh, no. The Polish ambassador just said in the last two hours, they're coming for the the Baltic states and Poland next. And he will do the same thing, nuclear blackmail. He will say to the NATO people, screw your Article 5. You won't do it. I'm going to take you down. And he, he, the goal here is to take the United States out of Europe to destroy Europe. He will take down America from within, which he did very effectively in 2016. I think you know about that. And that, that is what's going on here. It is, it is a classic. It is, you know, do not ask for whom the bell tolls here, Tom. It's tolling for us. It's tolling See, for you us. You haven't said we, a single word I disagree too- with. I, you know, I, I completely agree with you, and and uh, and I do I do believe that he's coming after the Baltic states next, and and mm-hmm. that you know the world needs to take a stand, and and if Ukraine falls, I think that's it, a it would be a terrible thing, but b I, I think that it, it's not going to hold. I, I I really think that Putin has bit off more than he can chew. This is not the world of 1945 or 1938 or 1939. This is a different mm. world. This is the first Twitter war, right? This is the first social media war, the first TikTok war. The world is watching. Russians are watching. This guy has gone way beyond what the world is willing to accept as civilized behavior. A lot of these sanctions that have been dumped on him, which are crippling Russia. I mean, the, the, the ruble is literally worth one penny per ruble right now. These sanctions are, are not going to go away tomorrow morning. They're starting now to seize the actual property of some of these Russian oligarchs. My biggest fear, Zeke, and my only, you know, I'm, I'm all gung-ho, right? <laughs> let's, let's do something. But that said, I said this yesterday, I'll say it again. We have to give Putin an out. We have to give him an opportunity to withdraw, to back off, and do so in a way that allows him to save face. And that might mean giving him part of the Donbass, or that might mean just coming up with some other excuse or something else but a cornered rat is the most dangerous animal on earth and this guy and this particular cornered rat has nukes yeah tom tom yeah. can i say something yeah quickly yeah. yeah you're you're going you're going down the the putin state of mind rabbit hole here that's exactly where he wants you to go and that's why he's going to win because you just said it you just said it you're not going to do what needs to be done here because you're afraid he's going to go nuke on you which he's not going to do by the way because he will die yeah. his country will be destroyed well that's the, that's the point yeah. i mean i think this would be the equivalent of a murder suicide but you may be right zeke you may be right Dr. Lin in Los Angeles. Hey, Dr. Lin, what's up? When I see the Russian convoy, my primitive emotional reaction is to hope somebody bombs the hell out of them. But when I think about it, if there is a a different way of living, a carbon-free solution as well, is to have 10,000 women march to an area on the road that's kind of like a choke point and just lie down. The Russians do identify with the Ukrainians. They look like them kind of similar people. You know, I think that there might be a real power in having a nonviolent resistance. You'd have to sell that to the Ukrainians, Dr. Lin, but I think you may be right. I mean, there's that famous photo that's going around about the guy 
an imitation of a tank man in Tiananmen Square. I would be scared to do that. On the other hand, you've got a tank that just rolled right over a car with a guy in it. So, Wasn't there a town where they turned the Russians around? I, I just heard that on, I think, Democracy Now! Actually, they talked about it last night on uh, Rachel Maddow's show, too, or maybe it was Chris Hayes' show. They, the people turned out and said, leave, and the Russians left. Yes, there was a town where they basically drove the Russians out. You know, whether the Russians are coming back, I just don't yeah. know. You know, it's, it's a, a tough and problematic thing. Dr. Lynn, thank you for the call. Rob in Mesa, Arizona. Hey, Rob, what's on your mind today? The Republican Party is Trump, and it's funny that your guests confuse Trump with Putin because I see them as identical in yeah. character and purpose in life. You know, the only difference is, but they're just both arrogant people. I think the big and difference is that Putin's a hell of a lot smarter than Trump. Yeah, well, yeah, definitely. Um, but uh, the other thing is that the Republican Party, you know, every time they say something positive, even hinting at Putin, they're on Russian TV as, you know, you know, supporting him. And so they're doing a very big disservice to do that. And the other thing is the Republican practice almost seems to have taken the policies of the Russian tactics. And just like the Russians have surrounded the Ukraine over a lie, you know, they said, oh, there's genocide going on or they're headed by some whatever group. Yeah, the, the Ju- their lie. Jewish president is a Nazi <laughs> yeah, <laughs> whose, exactly. grandfather, well, whose grandfather's three brothers died in the Holocaust. Yeah, well, the Republican Party is using the same tactic right now. They're, they're surrounding our election process over a lie. You're right. And they're trying to basically, you know, say that, you know, they're trying to fix it. It's like there's nothing broken. Matter of fact, if you claim that the, the election was stolen, legally, you're a liar because there's been over 60 lawsuits that disprove it. There's yeah. been all these audits, even the Arizona audit that had a very biased group come in. They couldn't find anything. So it wouldn't be my opinion that you're a liar. You're legally a liar when yeah. you believe that the election was if you, stolen. If you assert that, yeah. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Brian in Buffalo, New York. Hey, Brian, what's on your mind today? I just wanted to give a little thing on Russia-Ukraine real quick. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I think Russia is acting the way every nation state has kind of acted that's wanted to expand its borders. Uh, Manifest Destiny comes to mind. Monroe Doctrine comes to mind. I think the working class in America needs to not get bogged down in the team sports of uh, nation states going to war with each other and focus on building a genuine working class anti-war movement across the board. I get it. I, I, I absolutely get it. I would argue that right now building an anti-war movement is a good and important thing and pulling the working class together is a good and important thing. But the Monroe Doctrine was so 1823, you know? I mean, the, it, it's... And I, and I get it that, you know, Mike Pompeo three years ago said the Monroe Doctrine is as active today as the day it was written, but it's not. But we are asserting spheres of influence. I would also argue, Brian, that the world has moved significantly since the fall of the Soviet Union. The idea, and arguably since, since the end of World War II, I mean, that was the first big shift, the creation of the United Nations, and then the end of the, the Soviet Union, that the idea that one country can take out another country is rapidly becoming something that is so toxic that there's a consensus around the world about it. Now, this is what we did to Iraq in uh, 2003, when George W. Bush and Dick Cheney lied us into the war in Iraq. So we have a, a real handicap. You know, we've got our arm in a sling, as it were, when we try to try to talk about, you know, the moral authority of a sovereign nation and all that kind of thing. I think it's also, though, I think the next time some Republican gets in office and thinks that having a little war is going to get him reelected. You know, Reagan did this with Grenada. George Herbert Walker Bush had a little war with Iraq. Bill Clinton got involved in the in the Bosnian conflict. You, that's still a little more debatable, I think. I don't think that was as gratuitous a war. And then, obviously, George W. Bush with both Afghanistan, who was willing to arrest bin Laden, but no, Bush wanted to have a war, and then Iraq, which was just a complete lie. And even, arguably, Obama's taking out uh, Gaddafi in Libya, you know, uh, with a bomb strike. I think that all of those things are going to be much more difficult in the future to do for the United States to do or for any any you know major power in the world and and this idea of countries invading other countries and violating their sovereignty and 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 looting them and robbing and raping them essentially is probably going to be largely limited to the third world and even there it's going to get less and less able to do it I you know I just it well, seems to me right. Brian like the whole zeitgeist is changing the whole spirit of the times is changing uh, well I completely hope you're right but I think every nation state on the books has committed some sort of similar behavior. At least so, all the European just, ones. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, the, the so, colonialism of, of uh, yeah, Belgium absolutely. and France and Germany and England. And yeah, I, I, you know, I get it. I get it. I, I totally get it. Brian, thank you. And that's the history that we need to be teaching, too. You know, I mean, you know, just like we need to be teaching the history of slavery in the United States and enslavement, we need to be teaching the history of imperialism, essentially, and colonialism. This is just another example, like I was saying, you know, it's, it's all about control. It's all about hierarchy. It's all about keeping white men in charge of the world. And part of that means keeping women barefoot and pregnant, keeping them in the kitchen and the bedroom. Senate Republicans blocked a law that passed the House. It was called the Women's Health Protection Act that guaranteed at the federal level guaranteed a woman's right to an abortion. Now, the Supreme Court has said repeatedly, or uh, individual conservatives, this, is, this goes way back. I mean, Sam Alito said this, that if 
Congress wants to, you know, if the sentiment of the American people is that abortion should be legal, Congress should write it into law rather than just the Supreme Court. Because right now, the only thing that is protecting abortion rights in the United States is the Roe v. Wade 1973 Supreme Court decision. It was never made into law. It should have been made into law in 1974. But everybody thought, eh, you know, the Supreme Court's got this, it's good. And so there is no federal law that protects, if you're a woman, that protects your right to an abortion. Or even narrowly protects your right to an abortion, for example, if you get raped or if you're the victim of incest or something like that. Or if you're having a pregnancy that is very problematic. So Democrats passed this law, the Women's Health Protection Act, out of the House of Representatives, sent it to the Senate, and all of the Democrats present voted yes on this bill, except for Joe Manchin. All the Republicans voted no. Joe Manchin joined the Republicans. So abortion rights are dead in the Senate as of today. This is, you know, a vote against this bill is a vote against the fundamental right to control one's own body and future is the quote from one of the legislators. And it's just another example of this whole power dynamic that has played out in this country forever, essentially, that is being challenged now by women, by gender minorities, by racial minorities saying, no, wait a minute. Isn't everybody supposed to be equal or have equal opportunity in this country? Apparently not. Apparently not. Tim in Hendersonville, North Carolina. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today? One, it's horrifying having to watch 40 million people be taken over live on television and have no way to do anything about it, militarily speaking. But I think this is a really good eye-opener for Second Amendment proponents. Prior to the United States having a standing army, we always had local armories. And even out west, after the passage of the Second Amendment, most towns and cities had local ordinances where you had to check in your guns. Now, you'd mentioned many times about having licensure for owning guns. And I think you can do this both with a federal mandate that says that each county or each city has to have an armory. You can be allowed to keep one handgun and two long guns at your house. The rest of them have to be stored at the armory, and you just go check them in and out like library books, okay? In the time of a need of defense, like in the old days, and like we saw on on Ukraine TV Live, guns were handed out to the general population as needed. Now, nobody is going to think that the 1.2 million uh, gun-toting, white, Christian-loving Second Amendment proponents are going to stop, you know, brigades of tanks coming their way uh, with smart bombs and drones and everything else. But I think that you could, you could realistically go back to the old armory. In fact, that's where we get the term Jägermeister from days of uh, 1700s, 1800s in Germany, where it's a German all the drink local too. villages. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, made out of 43 herbs. <laughs> but yeah, a Jäger was a was a musket, and yeah. uh, it was a side by side double barrel musket. We don't have a hostile country on our border. I mean, we've got Mexico and Canada, and that's it, unless you're thinking Russia's going to come across the the Bering Straits after Alaska. No, I'm thinking getting guns off I don't see why you're suggesting that people should surrender their weapons and put them in an armory for a time of crisis. 
Because you're not impeding the Second Amendment right to bear arms or having a standing militia. Yeah. All you're doing is storing the guns for them. Okay. Only you're making well, it let me, a let license. Me, let, me, let me ponder that one, Tim. Tim, I got to run, but thank you for the call. Rachel in Odessa, Ukraine. Are you calling from Ukraine, Rachel? Uh, well, I was. I guess, sorry, my, I, my information just keeps popping around. You can hear me, yeah? Yes, I can. Oh, fantastic. Well, actually, at this moment, I'm in Warsaw. I am... Um, Oh, goodness. Great. Well, Poland. I can say, mm-hmm. yes, I am in Poland. I I can say I was sad to leave, reluctant to leave. I wanted to stay and help with the fight in yeah. whatever way. I don't have a, I don't have medical or military skills that would make me a, a real prominent asset in that respect. So I realized that I probably would not necessarily be the most valuable person to keep around for that purpose. So I, I, I agreed uh, to keep my parents from keeping their, their cardiac positions. Yeah. When you left Ukraine and went into Poland, where you are right now, Rachel, what did you see? Yeah. Well, I've been living in Kiev for quite a while, mm-hmm. as you know, and Russia. And yeah, you've Moscow called into the show from, and, from time yes, to time Yes, yes, from Kiev, from Moscow, from Odessa, yes. It's been a while. And then my flatmates are from the northwest corner of Ukraine, which would be, one would think, a safe place except for its proximity to the Belarusian border. Right. And it's, it's right near yeah, the, where Belarus, Poland, and, and Ukraine yeah, all yeah. meet. I mean, our, yeah. the, the regional capital is called Lutsk. You have a map or whatever. Their town is pretty remote. So, well, we have four cats that we packed in the van with us. I took two with me to Poland. Two of them are in their parents' or grandparents' house out there. I'm, I'm hoping that being so remote means that the there will not be Belarusian missiles at, pointed at my kitties and their family. Right. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I just, but also the idea was whole family, apart from the elderly relatives, were planning to come and go down to more populated and more important areas to help out. And yeah, it really, my point is it really is all hands on deck that is like now, Ukrainian I, people and people of, you know, yeah, multilingual, multi-ethnic, multi-everything is yeah, I get going it. on. Rachel, I was just reading a story a moment ago about this pregnant woman in Moscow who uh, posted a Facebook post saying, you know, we should get out in the streets and the police came and sure. hauled her off. And and well, yeah. multiple people are getting fines. Are you hearing that from your friends in, in Moscow? I, I, I don't know anything about her case. I would say she's profoundly unlucky mm-hmm. in that there are people who've been doing a lot of activism that has managed to get in and around things. Again, I would say that anybody in that position is subject to that kind of scrutiny. And they're, well, goodness, if they're going to do it with a heavily pregnant woman, Right. Who knows what others could face? Yeah, it's all. How is how is the internet functioning as you traveled, you know, across Ukraine and as you oh, traveled uh, into Poland? I was actually quite surprised. Yeah, I left our town of Kaminkashirsk in midday on Sunday, and yeah, other than just being in the woods and or you know out of data or whatever, which I always am, you know, figures. Internet has not been an issue. Electricity is not hell. Actually, electricity was an issue in my friend's flat here in Warsaw the other yesterday morning, not for political reasons, just, you know, because that stuff happens. But yeah, it 
That has not been an issue so far. I, I can't speak for every place in Ukraine, but I mean, through my the NGO I, I volunteer with, keeping tabs on activity pretty much up to the moment, and I have yet to hear any um, news of major blackouts or. How are the Poles so responding is, to the? I, I don't know if you speak Polish or uh, how closely you can. Ukrainian is pretty limited. So okay. I, well, I speak, well, I, like most people in Ukraine, I speak Surzhik, which is a mix of Russian and Ukrainian. So. Uh-huh. I'm curious um, what your sense is of how the Polish people are, uh, you know, are they as uh, essentially enraged as the rest of the world or are they freaked out that I'm, Belarus and, and Russia might be coming for them next? I don't think so. I, I think people, they're yeah, I mean, people are very, very welcoming to Ukrainian refugees. God damn it, even the word refugee, it seems strange that I crossed through with a large group of people that would effectively be called refugees. I mean, I have a yeah. U.S. passport, so, and, and I met, and myself and other foreigners, we had our own moment, but um, and honestly, I would say the EU framework and the NATO framework, even if it's unpopular to say so, has really cemented certain understandings. So, uh, also, oh, in Poland and, and surrounding countries. Yeah, as well. I, I'm with you. So, last question, Rachel, because we're going to hit a break here in a second. Theorizing earlier, based on my mm-hmm. knowledge of the EU, that mm-hmm. President Zelensky has asked for the EU to immediately give Ukraine membership in the European Union. And it mm-hmm. seemed to me that that would not give him any military advantage, but that would go a long way toward resolving the, the refugee crisis on the border in that once Ukrainian passports became EU passports, essentially, you've got people who are fleeing who can then just like literally, if they know somebody in Spain, if they know somebody in Italy, if they know somebody you know, anywhere else in the European Union, they don't need to go through border control. They, they're, they're, once they're in, they're in. And uh, it, it would make it less of a refugee crisis. I mean, it still would be, obviously, but more of a displaced persons. My understanding of it is also quite basic. I, I To the best that I understand, this has been a very, as far as I'm aware, very quick. NATO was always one of those, like, la, 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 like, on the horizon. It was a reason for Ukraine to get its military into a non-ineffective place, but it was never going to happen. It was more just like dangling. The actual EU membership was something entirely different. And now that it's, well, I I mean, yeah, if if that's for uh, refugee purposes, makes sense. I mean, it's still quite sad because the fight isn't over. Yeah. Slava Ukraina. They will fight to the end. Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 
This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Age of Illusions, How America Squandered Its Cold War Victory by Andrew Bacevich. This is from the introduction. Without the Cold War, what's the point of being an American? Henry Rabbit Angstrom, novelist John Updike's late 20th century everyman, posed that question just as the long twilight struggle was winding down. More than a quarter of a century later, Rabbit's plaintive query still awaits a definitive answer. Indeed, the passage of time has only sown confusion about whether there is a point to being an American. Even as the Cold War was ending, Updike's surrogate was not alone in feeling at a loss. By the 1980s, the Cold War had become more than a mere situation or circumstance. It was a state of mind. As had Rabbit, most Americans had come to take its existence for granted. Like the polar ice cap or baseball status as the national pastime, it had acquired an appearance of permanence. So its passing caught Rabbit's fellow citizens unawares. Those charged with managing the Cold War were, if anything, even more surprised. The enterprise to which they had devoted their professional lives had suddenly vanished. Here was a contingency that the sprawling U.S. national security apparatus, itself a product of the anti-communist crusade, had failed to anticipate. At one level, of course, the surprise could not have been more gratifying. In the epic competition against West, uh, pitting West against East, the God-fearing against the godless, and democracy against totalitarianism, our side had won. All-out nuclear war had been averted. The cause of freedom, which Americans felt certain they themselves embodied, had prevailed. Victory was decisive, sweeping, and unequivocal. In another sense, however, the passing of the Cold War could not have been more disorienting. In 1987, a senior advisor to Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev had warned, we are going to do a terrible thing to you. We are going to deprive you of an enemy. As the Soviet Union passed out of existence, Americans were left not just without that enemy, but without even a framework for understanding the world and their place in it. However imperfectly, the Cold War had, for several decades, offered a semblance of order and coherence. The collapse of communism shattered that framework. Where there had been purposefulness and predictability, now there was neither. Winning the Cold War brought Americans face-to-face -face with a predicament comparable to that confronting the lucky fellow who wins the Mega Millions lottery. Hidden within an apparent windfall is the potential for monumental disaster. Putting that windfall to good use while avoiding the pitfalls inherent in suddenly acquiring riches calls for prudence and self-awareness. Not easily demonstrated when the big house, luxury car, and vacation condo you've always wanted are yours for the asking. Similarly, the end of the Cold War might have given Americans pause, especially since the issues at hand were of considerably greater significance than homes, cars, and condos. At least in theory, the moment might have invited reflection on some first-order questions. What is the meaning of freedom? What does freedom allow? What obligations does it impose? Whom or what does it exclude? Of course, Americans had been wrestling with such questions since well before 1776, their answers evolving over time. During the several decades of the Cold War, however, the exigencies of the East-West rivalry had offered a reason to throttle down impulses to explore America's freedoms for their most boundaries. Except on the fringes of American politics, most citizens accepted the word from Washington that their way of life was under grave threat. In the pecking order of national priorities, addressing that threat, defending freedom rather than enlarging it, tended to take precedence over other considerations. This is not to suggest that Cold War Americans were a complicated lot. They were not. 
From the 1950s, misleadingly enshrined as a decade of conformity, through the Reagan-dominated 1980s, domestic crises and controversies were constants. Among the issues energizing or enraging Americans were civil liberties, the nuclear arms race, mismanaged wars of dubious provenance, challenges to artistic tradition, left-wing and right-wing radicalism, crass materialism that coexisted with the widespread poverty, and a host of simmering issues connected to race, sex, and gender. Yet through it all, an uncommon outlook centered on resistance to the red threat endured. For most citizens, most of the time, the Cold War itself was sufficient to explain the point of being an American. The collapse of the Soviet Empire between 1989 and 1991 robbed that outlook of its last vestiges of authority. Rarely, if ever, had the transition from one historical period to another occurred quite so abruptly with such a precise set of demarcations and with such profound implications. As if in an instant, the discipline that the Cold War had imposed vanished. The absurdity of defining reality as an either-or choice, red or dead, slave or free, good versus evil, now became blazingly apparent. The impact on American ambitions and expectations was akin to removing the governor from an internal combustion engine. Suddenly the throttle opened up. The future appeared equally promising, offering Americans a seemingly endless array of choices while confronting them with few evident constraints. Everything seemed possible. Confident that an era of unprecedented U.S. economic, military, and cultural ascendancy now beckoned members of an intoxicated elite through caution to the winds. The book, The Age of Illusion, by Andrew Basevich. Sharon in Kansas City, Missouri. Hey, Sharon, what's up? Oh, I was just watching the Republican senators on a YouTube PBS channel uh -huh. talking live about the Keystone Pipeline and if Biden would reverse his decision on that, that we could stop this thing in Russia cold. That's bull. That they think that, well, and from what I understand, and you correct me because I don't know this for fact, but from what I have understood, that what we would be bringing through the Keystone Pipeline is dirty oil, tar sand oil. We wouldn't even be refining it. We would be shipping it out to be refined elsewhere because it's so expensive to refine it. No, we would refine it. I don't know if Coke Industries still owns it, but I'm pretty sure that Coke Industries was who built the refinery down on the Gulf Coast to accept that stuff. And it was going to be refined here in America so that the, and the consequence of that would be that the, all the poison from the refining process would pour all over Texas and Louisiana. And then we would export the, the refined products. It was all designed for export. This was not designed for the U.S. market. So it well, is just, a, they are lying through their teeth and they know it. With. And they're dancing to the tune of, uh, you know, some right-wing pet, petro-billionaires. I don't know if it's Charles Koch and his buddies or not, but Sharon, thank you for the call. Bill in Sarasota, Florida. Hey, Bill, what's up? Hi, Tom. You know, within the context of the Russian-Ukraine uh, conflict, we've been hearing a lot of talk about what our energy policy should be. And as part of that, I keep hearing all this talk about the U.S. as being energy independent. I hear that a lot. And I find that very, very hard to believe because the data I've been getting, we consume, the U.S. consumes roughly the equivalent of about uh, 20 uh, million barrels of crude oil per day, yet uh, we are well. We, we consume that much, but we have been producing at best about about 12, maybe 13 million barrels 
of crude oil a day. So at least that's And yet most of the electricity that we're getting, in fact, all of the electricity I'm getting is coming from a dam on the Columbia River. You've got uh, Texas is generating more than 24% of their electricity right now from wind and solar. Iowa is getting more than 20% of their electricity from wind. Kansas is, is in the high teens in terms of their uh, energy capacity from wind. Uh, New Hampshire and Vermont are up there. They're putting windmills up on top of their mountains. So I think when you add all the numbers up, Bill, and you look at, at, the, at the, the renewables, uh, we are in energy independent. Uh, but I do also think we should stop exporting oil, crude oil. Brett in Windsor, Colorado. Hey, Brett, what's on your mind? Uh, a couple of things, Tom. Just to follow that line of thought, I think it was you years ago that mentioned one of uh, President Reagan's first act acts was to remove the solar panels from the White House. Yeah, Jimmy Carter. Yeah. Remembering that right? Yep. Yeah. Um, but uh, the reason I called is I was listening to Megan with Indivisible.org. So mm. while I was listening to that segment, I checked it out here in Colorado, and all of their websites and locations are in traditionally blue areas already. And I was hoping that they had a little penetration into the red areas of Colorado. And that brought me to a, a thought in general. How, how do you suggest Democrats in general work their way back into areas that used to be blue yeah. uh, back, you know, 60s, 70s, before jobs started going uh, being exported. I, I am not an insider with indivisible.org, but I, I am yeah. quite familiar with the organization. So uh, yeah. I would I would encourage anybody in a red county anywhere in the United States right now to go to indivisible.org and say, hey, I'd like to start a chapter. Absolutely. That's a great idea, Tom. And what do you recommend Democrats in general to get the party more into these now red areas? I mean, you look at the map during uh, yeah. uh, you know, the elections, and it's just red in the middle of the country. How can Democrats, you think it's just going to have to be grassroots? It, it absolutely has to be grassroots. And, it, and, it also, and, and the Democratic Party needs to focus on things that uh, will motivate swing voters. Um, you know, free college education, dealing with health care problems, lowering the cost of prescription drugs, legalizing marijuana. All these things pull really well among both independents and Democrats. So, you know, that's where I think they need to go. Uh, thanks for the call. Joe in Bowling Green, Ohio. Hey, Joel, Joe, we have about a half a minute left. You got a quick one? Yes, I do. Uh, people are asking what they could do. It occurs to me that since Russia's gas and oil exports are not being boycotted by the rest of the world, if we in the U.S., who use the most gas of anyone on the planet, cut back our usage, that would drop the price and that would hurt Russia. So I'm just suggesting that everybody in the next weeks, you know, use as little gasoline as they possibly can. Yeah, there you go. And it's it's not and it'll save you money and it'll help the environment. Joe, thank you for the call. And in uh, my apologies to those of you who are still on hold. We'll, we'll, we'll get to you tomorrow. Thanks so much for being with us today. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time, same place. In the meantime, don't forget democracy is not a spectator sport. It requires all of us. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. There's so much you can do. Check out, you know, apropos of today's conversation with Megan, indivisible.org as a starting point. And of course, freespeech.org. We'll see you tomorrow. Have a great afternoon. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.